Philippians. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is uh, Mark, one of the pastors here. And um, if you've been coming, you know that we just finished a series in apologetics. We took four, year, uh, four weeks, four years. <laughs> we got about four years worth of knowledge in four weeks. So, And those videos are up on the website, by the way. So if you need to go back and like resubmerge yourself, um, all these videos get posted on the website, godspeakcalvarychapel.com, I think. Just Google Godspeak. We're the only one. So... Um, yeah, so we finished four weeks, and then um, now we're going to be getting back into a book, and Zach and I have kind of the luxury and, and um, the gift to really kind of treat these series however we want. Rob's given us a lot of, of freedom, and if you guys have noticed, we've pretty much done like, we even said this as we planned out the rest of the year, because like a month ago we planned out the rest of the year, we have everything scheduled through uh, into 2016, um, and, and it's kind of fun because we've done me doing a book, we've done Zach doing a book, we've done topical messages, we've done textual messages where we just go through a port, just a part of a book, we've done um, on and off, we've gone back and forth, um, but the one thing we hadn't really done yet was teach through a book exegetically, the both of us together. That was like one of the things, and so it's kind of like a, like not to make light of it, it was like kind of like a, another notch, we're like, let's try that, because Rob's really given us the freedom to really as pastors, learn how to ebb and flow off each other and how to shepherd a congregation together and group of people and go through a study together. And so what we're going to do with the book of Philippians is I'm going to teach the first and the third week, and Zach is going to teach the second and the fourth week. And then we'll see who has the biggest attendance, and then whoever has the biggest <laughs> attendance wins the prize or something. So yeah, yeah, the offering's been going to this bet for about six months now. So, um, yeah, no. So we're going to do the book of Philippians together. So me, and then if you don't like what I teach, come back next week, because then Zach will teach and vice versa. And so, um, but it's going to be good. And it's going to challenge us. And Zach's going to be listening, because now he's got to build his sermon and not be off in a totally different direction than me. And then me the third week, I've got to do the same thing with him. So um, that's how we're going to be going through the book of Philippians. We've titled it The Art of Joy. This is... Um, just one of the mega themes of the of the book of Philippians is the is is the uh, is this letter of joy. A lot of people say, and it is one of the prison epistles. Okay, Paul was writing this from uh, prison, from house arrest. Okay, um, and yet he's talking all about joy. And so, um, if you're there, we're going to be in chapter one. We're just going to rip through it. Um, I'm going to teach, but I'm also just going to read a lot at times, and just kind of let God's word speak for itself. Sound good? All right, let's pray real fast. I need help. You need help. And so we'll pray for that now. God, I, uh, I, I mean that sincerely. Um, without your Holy Spirit, um, this will just be talking. It won't be teaching. And so I pray that you would convert this just from a talk to a time of instruction, to a time of worship for all of us, to a time of learning, that I would just not be up here speaking, that you would take this from a speech and you would turn it into a sermon. And so, God, just penetrate the hearts of your people as we take a look at this concept um, that I admittedly wanted to go very deep on and yet found myself just continuing to come back to the fundamental understanding of it. And so I just pray that you would sort out everything in our hearts now, um, as we go through your word. So we're excited about this. Thank you for Paul's diligence to write this under captivity um, and, and imprisonment. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you authored this book and that 
Paul was diligent to pen it. And so we know that you had much to speak to the church at Philippi then, and you have much to speak to the same letter to us today. And so we're excited for that. Uh, Jesus, be glorified. This is your service. This is your people. This is your church. And so be glorified in all that we do. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I said, the book is written by Paul. Who is here for our study through 2 Timothy? Before apologetics. Couple? I'm going to do a quick recap of Paul. You remember I spent quite a bit of time, and, and I just, I, I find this in my own studies. I, I go back and study the author again, even when I know it's Paul. I haven't just done one study of Paul, and then I look at it, all his epistles, and just forget about his background and his backdrop. So I'd like to do that again. I'd like to talk about Paul real fast. Um, true or False. Paul was alive when Jesus was alive on earth. False. Paul never met Jesus on earth. Never met. Wasn't born until like a decade after Jesus ascended. And Paul, true or false, that's always been his name. False. Paul was originally Saul. So you're like, I did not show up to church to be asked questions. Just tell me what I need to know. Okay, I'm not in school. It's summer. <clears throat> What was Paul's profession? What was Paul's trade, his choice? What was his life? Or as Saul, I should say. He was a Pharisee. Pharisee, right? So he was a religious leader. He was an Israelite by birth. He was a Roman citizen by birth. And he was a true enemy of Christianity. A true enemy of Christianity. And so as a Pharisee, he oversaw the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And that's just the one we have recorded. He very likely oversaw many more. He stood there and and the people laid their garments at his feet. And then he said, on with it. As the religious authority, he said, "This this is just, this is good. You have the temple's blessing and they would stone Christians to death. Paul, it said, breathed. If you encountered Paul as Saul, if you met Saul, the Bible says that he simply breathed threats and murder against the church. Saul went out of his way. He was a religious leader. They had soldiers to do this, yet he personally would go along to drag women and men and children out of their homes and to put them in prison if they were a part of the quote-unquote the way, which was a derogatory term of the, the followers of Jesus, Christians, little Christs. Paul, or I should say Saul, hated the church. Saul hated Christians. Saul sought to extinguish Christians. He was, he was on a trip to Damascus and he said, he, he went up to the authorities and said, look, I need you to, I need, I need a letter so that as I travel, if I come across any of these Christians, I can drag them out of their homes. I can tie them up and I can take them with me and throw them into prison. So I'm going I'm to head off to another city. I need, I need the authority. I need the, the paper signed, stamped and sealed that I can drag people from their homes if they profess to be a Christian. That's how much he just could not stand it. And on the way to Damascus, who showed up? Jesus showed up. From where? From heaven. He cracked open heaven. And Jesus just being the source of light, it says that that light beamed down on Saul. And Saul fell. 
He said he couldn't see for days after that. He didn't eat. He didn't drink for days after that. Jesus cracks open heaven. And what did he say to him? Saul. Saul. He said it twice. Like when your parents say your name twice, you're in trouble. So why are you persecuting me? And Saul, like the, one of the, the smartest guys, like, who are you, Lord? Right? The wise become fools when Jesus shows up. Who are you, Lord? It's like, I'm Jesus. And Paul's offenses against the church were Paul's offenses against Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus shows up and he smacks him. He says, Paul, go forward. Go into the city and you'll be told what to do. Notice what Jesus didn't do, as we talked a lot about in 2 Timothy. He didn't say, Paul, look, let's talk about all the stuff you've done. Jesus says, from here on out, move forward. Paul had a radical conversion. When he met Jesus, everything changed. And he went on to be a giant for the faith. In terms of books, he wrote the majority of the New Testament, including this letter. He went on three long missionary journeys. Like our our missionary journeys are cute. It's like a week and we take a plane, right? And we stay in a hotel, right? We eat a couple meals a day, right? How many of you go on a journey if I told you to, well, day one, you need to walk from here to Santa Barbara? You're like, I don't think Jesus wants me to do that. (laughs) Just on your feet. No freeway either. Take the back route. No. Now hop on a boat. Get shipwrecked a couple times. Get bitten by snakes. I don't think Jesus wants me to do that. He wants me to go to X, Y, or Z. And long missionary journeys Paul went on. He was kicked through the streets. He was stoned. Whenever he went into a city, it says that one of two things happened, a riot or a revival. And he was this giant that had this radical conversion because Jesus showed up and changed everything for him. And now Paul loves the church. Paul serves the church. Paul spends his life encouraging the church. Paul goes out and plants churches. As we saw in 2 Timothy, he writes letters to church leaders to get them excited about what's going on. And he doesn't waste a minute. He's in prison. He's like, yes, I can talk to guards and write letters. See, because for Paul, it was never about his circumstances. For Paul, it was never about his circumstances. There were many times where Paul was not happy but Paul always had joy. And there's a big difference. And so Philippians, as we said, is this book with this mega theme of joy. And it was written during Paul's Roman house arrest. So in 2 Timothy, we took a look when he was in jail, which is kind of like an underground cavity with a hole in the top of it, okay? And then that was right before he was martyred. We've got a backup in his life now. He's under house arrest, Okay, we see that in Acts 28. He was waiting for his court appearance before Caesar, Nero, brutal Caesar, about AD 61. It was written to the church at Philippi, not surprising, which is in Eastern Macedonia. It's kind of like the Northern, I guess, part of Greece. If you take a look at Greece, sort of Northern major chunk. I think it's the largest region, still the most populated region in Greece today. You can go there today. You can go to where the church of Philippi was in Greece. 
eastern, northeastern, I guess, Macedonia, which was actually founded by Paul 11 years prior. And so this is a church that he planted. He started this church. He had so much love for this church, so much joy when he thought of this church. And that just oozes in this letter back to the church. And it was actually the first church established on the continent of Europe. The first one, a guy that was overseeing the murder of Christians as planting churches in Europe. And unlike Galatians and Colossians, this wasn't a, it wasn't a letter written in response to heresy or any sort of issue. Again, it's this encouraging letter of joy and love for the people at the church of Philippi. He loved these people so much. They had supported him consistently, financially, spiritually, in prayer. They supported their first pastor in Paul. And he loved this church. And you'll see that he writes to express appreciation and affection more than any other church. The believers at Philippi offered Paul material support for his ministry. We see that in 2 Corinthians 8, Philippians 4. Paul's affection for these people is clear. And he encourages them, as we're going to see, to live out their faith in joy and in unity. In joy and in unity. And so it says, Paul and Timothy. And we saw in our last study that Paul writes to Timothy at, at the end of his ministry. Paul had served alongside Timothy, this young guy that had a, had a faith his whole life, unlike Paul. And so Paul and Timothy, it says, bond service of Jesus Christ, all the saints in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's how you're referred to in the New Testament. The title Christian is two, maybe three times, depending on your translation in, in, in the New Testament. In Christ in Christ, in Christ. It's not simply a title you hold. It's something that you are in. So he says to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, and those are the leadership, just very simply the leadership. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He loves these people. He's just going to ooze it. Let's just read. He says, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. With joy. He's not talking about happiness. Now, here, here's the thing. A lot of times, and we got to be careful, because a lot of times people turn this book into like an anti-joy or an anti-happy book. Like, don't pursue happiness, pursue joy. I'm like sort of down with both. Anyone else? Anyone just like, I hate being happy. I can't, I just, I want to be a Christian. I want to just have like miserable joy the rest of my life. Look, when things are, it's okay to be happy. Okay. But happiness is based on your circumstances. Joy is in spite of your circumstances. You need to know that. That is the massive foundation that I'm just going to repeat like 48 times in this chapter. So hear it now, and if you missed it, don't worry. Second time's coming up here pretty soon. That's the foundation that we have to lay. Is that happiness and joy are different. I wrote down this. Look, you're happy when you get a raise, right? Some of you are happy if you just get a job at this point, right? Right? <clears throat> 
happy when you get a raise. It's a good thing. Jesus isn't like, don't be happy you got a raise. Just have miserable joy, right? It's, it's not that. Like, happy I got a raise. I can provide for my family, right? Can maybe go on a vacation. Happy when you get a raise. Are you happy when you get a girlfriend or boyfriend, right? Happiness. Are you happy when you get a new phone for crying out loud? I'm up for my renewal finally in August. I have the iPhone 4. I know, some of you don't even know what that is. There was a before the 6. I'm upgrading to the 5. I hear it has panoramic video. I can't wait. I can't wait. Some of you are like, what? Yeah, 99 cents if I upgrade only every two years. And I have the original data plan, so I get unlimited for 20 bucks over what my original bill was. Y'all are getting destroyed on your bill. I'm paying like 80 bucks for unlimited all the time, but I got to be like two versions behind. So I get the five in August. I'm going to be so happy about it for a little while, right? You get a new car. You're happy, right? You've seen this. You've seen this like sort of surge of emotion. I got a job. I got a raise. Your circumstances are up. So your emotions go up. You're happy and that's okay. It's okay to be happy as long as you don't obviously trip into idolatry but you're not happy when you get fired. When you get a pay decrease, okay? Private sector, that, that's actually a thing. In the public sector, they just expect to make more every year for the rest of their lives. Private sector, people get paid less sometimes than they did the year before. You're not happy when your girlfriend or boyfriend breaks up with you. You're not really happy with that phone after a couple months, are you? How fast is that novelty worn off for you? Right? I remember the first, I, look, I got the iPhone 1 when it first came out. I didn't do anything for like three days. It was the first time app, I could download apps and music. It was crazy. So happy. Eh, now it's like, pfft. think about your circumstances. Think about when you're going through the week, what makes you happy? What are the things that you do that make you happy? It doesn't mean that these are bad things. It doesn't mean it's bad to be happy. But happiness is based on your circumstances. Joy comes in when your circumstances plummet. Happiness does this. Joy is the net that catches you. And as we were praying out before the service, I was, I was just praying and said, look, some of you are coming here and, and, and perhaps you feel like you're in a free fall. Your circumstances suck. Let's just be honest. It's Sunday night. We can say suck. Maybe your circumstances suck right now. You lost a job. You've lost a boyfriend. Maybe they don't want to marry you. Maybe your parents are, are, having, are having issues. Maybe you, you don't know where your next check's going to come from. Maybe you're fighting with your best friend. And you feel like you're free-falling and your happiness is plummeting. I pray tonight and I pray that this study sets a, a safety net for you of joy. It says when your circumstances plummet, joy catches you. Because happiness is based on your circumstances. Joy is in spite of them. So you have to know that you can have joy and not be happy. You need to know that. I'm not preaching, the ha- I'm not, I'm not preaching Osteen. I'm not a pre- just smile all the time and pretend it's epic. It's not. It's not epic all the time. Bible never once promises that. Quite the opposite. Paul's in prison. Paul's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been bitten by a snake. I don't do snakes. I'd peace out of the church if I got bit by a snake. Like, nope, not doing this anymore. I hate snakes. Freak me out. He's, not, he's likely not happy right now. 
His circumstances are dark and it's terrible. He's going to go before a gnarly Caesar. He's going to get off this time, not next time, as we saw at the end of 2 Timothy. Paul would be a pastor until the day they lopped off his head. So we just have to, we had to camp here and do this. Happiness, we're good with happiness. We like that. We're okay with that. But what I want to encourage us is about this joy component is that we can have joy. Look, the world can steal your happiness, but they can never take your joy. Hear me again. The world can steal your happiness, but it can never take your joy. And so Paul writes to them and says, every prayer of mine making request for you all with joy. Being confident No, no, sorry, verse five, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day. He was there from the first day. He'd been there when this church started with just a couple random people being like, this is where we meet. Right? I love when Mark's here. It makes me feel so funny. And I'm not. Since the first day until now, being confident in this very thing that he, that's Jesus, check this out. This is huge. You've heard this a lot. You've heard this in the church. If you've been in the church more than like a week, You've heard this stated from the pulpit. Being confident of this very thing. Paul says, I am confident in this very thing. Dear church, be confident in this very thing that he, Jesus, who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Some of you are unhappy. Some of you are struggling with your joy because you don't feel like you've gotten somewhere in your faith. You forget that faith is a process, not an end game. It's called a process of sanctification, not an arrival at it. Faith is a process that God is going to keep you in your whole life. Part of what steals our joy in the church is that we've somehow believed under the surface that when I become a Christian, it's going to keep getting better. And if it's not getting better, I have to then question my faith. Because we forget that it's a process. It's a pruning. It's sanctification. God does not have a goal for you. He has a process for you. Your faith is a process. It's not an end point. I've arrived at my faith. I'm done. Look, Don't let that steal your joy. It is a process. And God is a God who completes his work. Jesus was a worker, both as creator of all things and as a carpenter and as a pastor and as a missionary, Jesus completes his work. It says, who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Faith is a process. Don't let that shock you. It is an ongoing process. It is a marathon. It is not a sprint. Happiness is a sprint and you get gassed on it. Joy is a marathon. And Jesus is working on all of us Joy comes from an understanding of this. 
It says that the work in the believer will not be finally complete until the day of Christ Jesus. Don't get frustrated that you feel like you're not there yet. You're not. I'll just tell you that now. Just relieve that burden from me. I don't feel like I'm just, you're not. Welcome. We're not going to be until Jesus shows up. It's a process. Until the day of Christ Jesus, that's when it will be completed. That's when this whole process will be over. This whole pruning that God is allowing the world to go through, praying from heaven that more people come to him, allowing time to pass before he says, I've had enough. And you need to know at some point, Jesus says, I've had enough. I've given them enough time. And he comes down and that's the day of Christ Jesus. But until that day, it's a process. Again, joy is the marathon that will sustain you through that process. Happiness are those little spurts of energy that wear you out. And so we're talking about that underlying joy. Verse seven, it says, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. See, we always think of Paul as like this massive mind, right? Dude was wicked smart. He could out-debate anyone, but he had a huge heart as well. And we often don't talk about that. He kept all these people in his heart. And that's an encouragement for us pastors. We got to be reminded that keep all of you in our heart. So you've got to, as, as priests to your friends and your family, you got to keep all of them in your heart. Don't push people out. All of them in your heart. Paul says, I'll keep all of you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. Verse eight says, for God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, see, and he attributes that that's the reason he loves the church now. Look, I, I, I look, I'm a pastor's kid. My dad just retired 40 years in the pulpit. I did not have a heart for the church for most of it until I finally let Jesus regenerate my heart. I got some of you, some of you show up and you do not, you could not care less about the church. That's dangerous. He says, look, when, when, when I meet Jesus, when, I, when he finally submitted to Jesus, he says, look, with all the affection of Jesus Christ, you know you're in Christ when your affection for his bride increases. They're no longer just announcements about how the church needs you to do something to keep functioning. It's about what you can do to serve Jesus's bride. And those announcements become a little sweeter and they are now seen as opportunities as you spend more time with Jesus and the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, he'll give you an affection. It won't come from you. Don't try to muster up love for the church. I got to start caring about the church. You need to love Jesus and the Holy Spirit will flip that for you. Because Jesus served the church and so we serve the church. Forget all this nonsense about, it's just me and I'm just a spiritual. It's just me and Jesus. That was never his intent. It's nowhere. The Holy Spirit will drive you to this affection for the church, but you need to know that it will come from Jesus Christ, not from you. And this I pray, verse nine, that your love may abound still more and more. The church at Philippi had a ton of love already. A ton of love. And Paul said, there's not enough. Look, there's never enough love. 
in the church. They had a ton of all the churches written to. I imagine church of Philippi probably had the most. And Paul's like, more of it. I'm praying for more of it. More love amongst you. More care for each other. More listening among you. More desire to serve the church among you. Your love may abound still more and more, but this is not blind love. Check this out. He says, in knowledge and all discernment. This is not a love wins campaign. Timely. This is not a love wins campaign, which is just, let's say it's love and let anything go. Despite knowledge and despite discernment, just love. No, he says love abound more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. He took the church in Galatia to task with their free love. He took them to task for their unadulterated openness in terms of fornication and love. This is not simply blind love. This is love that has an understanding and a discerning heart. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I asked my dad one time, I said, look, the whole, the whole debate in college at, at the time I was going and still today was homosexuality, this idea of love. And I said, dad, how do you, Reverend Dr. David Norman Glesney, how do you define love? Because that's what it ultimately comes down to. My dad said one of the most profound things I've ever heard. Love is wanting for others what God wants for them. Love, that's how you can love someone even though they may not like what you're saying. Love is wanting for others, desiring for others what God wants for them. Because if God is love, you want what he wants for them. That's the highest form of, I've never heard, I'm not saying it's in the Bible, you can't turn to a page and read that definition. But I've asked this of people of all political backgrounds, all ideological backgrounds, can you think of a higher definition than that? Of that, I don't know. Love is wanting for others what God wants for them. And what God wants for them is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus Christ. The most loving thing you can do is tell someone about Jesus. So this isn't just blind love. Look, as long as you say it's love, go for it. It's not what he's saying. In knowledge and discernment, which comes from understanding what God wants for people. And if only he like wrote a book on that. Wouldn't that be epic? Like if God like wrote a book to his people about what he wants for people. Amazed, just thought I'd throw that out there. Some of you aren't surprised or even laughing. So he says, love still more and more, but in knowledge and all discernment. And again, I wrote in my notes, I'm sorry, did I say Galatia? No, it was Corinthians, the church in Corinthians. Paul knew the danger of an undiscerning love. He rebuked the Corinthian church, which glorified in free love and openness of fornication and lacked any sense of knowledge and discernment. You can take a look at 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 7, the Corinthian church. Excuse me, I make mistakes. Verse 10, it says, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God, and we're going to get into some chunk, a big chunk here. It's a lot of meat in this epistle. He says this, he says, verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me 
have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. See, the church of Philippi had seen a lot of really radical stuff. A lot of radical God's sovereignty over instances, even culminating in, in the jailbreak of Paul and the deliverance of the people before the authorities. But Paul didn't seem at this point to be getting out of anything. And in Paul's home arrest, he didn't, God didn't seem to be showing up and breaking him out of anything. And so Paul encourages him and says, look, don't look at my circumstances. Don't base that on the circumstances. A lot more is happening. He says, for the furtherance of the gospel. So it had become evident to the whole palace guard Right? Like, like, Paul, like Paul was the guy that they were, like, they were playing rock, paper, scissors to not have to guard him that night. Like, dude is going to tell me about Jesus again. I'll rock, paper, scissors you for this one, dude. I'll clean your house. I'm not going to sit next to that guy. And they would chain guards next to him. And Paul's like, hey, have a seat. Glad to see you here, Maximus. Want to talk to you about a few things. You're a strapping young lad, aren't you? Right? Paul, this little old rabbi... Hey, a new one. Has it been six hours already? Get in here. Paul just went to town on these guys. Like, oh, and they were like strapping out. He's like, have a seat, bro. I want to tell you about some things. The whole palace guard knew about Jesus at this point. You think because your circumstances are terrible, you can't talk about Jesus. What an epic time to talk about Jesus faith is easy when things are easy. I dare you to show faith when they're not. Faith is easy when things are easy. I dare you to show faith when they're not. See what happens. Because just berating people when things are good. I got a job. Jesus loves me. I'm married. I got kids. Just everything's going right. You're like, of course you have a faith. Of course you think God's in control of it all. What happens when you lose a kid in, in the womb? What happens when you lose your job? Say, Jesus is still in control of this. That's what ministers to the world. Not everything's great, so that's why God is great. How about when everything sucks and God is still great? Now there's a message the world wants to hear about. Everything's terrible. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Though, yeah, he slayed me. I'm still going to church. I'm still serving the church. I'm still loving Jesus. I'm still reading my Bible. Can I help you? Can I serve you? Can I do anything for you in this time? Because I just lost my job. I got free time. Can I do anything for you? Can I serve you? Now the word, now you've got an open ear. People are like, dude, we get chained to these guys. These people, they never come in talking like Paul's talking. The whole palace guard knew about Jesus at this point. Not that you have to chain your friends to you, but it could help. I don't know. You could, you could take it, be a legalist and start chaining, chaining people to you, but... It become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Verse 14 says, and most of the brethren, those are fellow Christians in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, the world will hear that message and Christians themselves will become encouraged. Rob asked me right after, I mean, think of the audacity of this from a, from a worldly perspective. My wife and I have lost two kids. We have three, we're, we've got a third on the way right now. We're going to have, by the grace of God, we're going to have three on earth and two in heaven. And when we lost our first kid, we ran to Rob. We ran to Rob's office. So we, and Rob had the audacity to say, do two things. Start serving people. 
Because he knew that would get us out of thinking about us the whole time. So you're like, that's a little harsh. No, that's biblical. And then you know what he did? He had me teach on Wednesday night about it. And I got up and I was a blubbering mess up here. Show people your faith in the hard times. And Christians then get encouraged. The world will listen and Christians will be encouraged when you're in bad circumstances and yet you still profess joy. The world will listen and Christians will be encouraged. Paul says, my circumstances are dark right now. And the guards know about Jesus and Christians are getting fired up. I don't know what your circumstances are right now. Some of you are on a high, but I'm telling you, it'll only last for a little while. As we all know, it'll plummet. Zach's been there when I've showed up and sat right out there and said, I don't want to be here tonight. I don't care anymore. That's awful. I hit a low. And my happiness plummeted. And I questioned every, look, it's going to happen. Some of you are there right now and some of you are on a high. You're like, no, I'm flying high. But you've been there and you will again. The net is this eternal joy. It says, the brethren become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Are you encouraging Christians through tough circumstances as well? Because your happiness may be in the tank, but your joy is sustaining you. Again, the world can steal your joy, but it, or it can steal your happiness, but it can never take your joy. And he says this, and look, Paul's a realist. Verse 15 he says, look, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Okay, so, so Paul's in prison. Paul's being held down. He's in a room. He's got guards. And then you've got some pastors out there taking advantage. Saying, well, he's down. Now's the time to raise myself over his ministry. Because Paul was a giant. A giant in the faith. And so, some pastors, out of envy and strife, said, now's the time to elevate ourselves. Look, he can't do anything. He's in there. Now's the time to take our ministries and put them above Paul's. Now's the time to take our names and put them above Paul's. So indeed preach, some indeed preach Christ with envy and strife and some also from goodwill. He says some of these pastors, but not all these pastors, but check out this, check this out. He says, look, some people are preaching from, from an envious standpoint. Some of them from actually goodwill. So those are the two buckets for all pastors at the time. Some of them are jealous, they're mad, and they're just going to use this for their gain. Some of them are preaching from goodwill and they're preaching from, but check this out. Check out what Paul does. He says, the former preached Christ from a selfish ambition. Ambition is not bad, but selfish ambition is. Not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. They want to push him down even further so that they can be lifted up. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. He says, look, some people are just doing this selfishly. Some people actually love Jesus. They're pushing the defense of the gospel and they're doing it out of love. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether in selfishness or out of love, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Here's what Paul does. He says, look, I really don't care about your motives. I'm just stoked that people are talking about Jesus. So anyway, but he needs to be, now, don't get me wrong. This is actually, I believe, where I was confusing with Galatians. Paul certainly objected if he thought a false or distorted gospel was being preached, even from the best motives. If you want to see that, that's Galatians 1, 6 through 9. 
He would rather have people preaching Christ from false motives than a false gospel from good motives. He says, look, two buckets. People are doing this out of, out of envy and some out of love. I'm just glad that people are preaching Jesus. He took the motive and said, that's for God to deal with. We spend a lot of time trying to discern the motives of people. I learned this back in the day when I was a, a political debater, blogger, I was on a couple of radio shows, nationwide stuff. And, and one of the things that, that I learned early on is look, if you want to lose any chance to have a discussion with someone, just question their motives. Just question their motives. You, you will completely debase your ability to ever have a, a discussion with them again. When you go into the heart and say, well, I actually know, you, you say you're doing it for this, but I'm saying you're going to do it for this reason. That's for God. Paul says, look, they're preaching Jesus. I think some of them are doing it out of, out of selfishness. Some of them are doing it out of love. He says, look, I'm just going to give that one to God. I'm just glad people are talking about Jesus. Not a false gospel, but a true gospel from bad motives as opposed to a false gospel from good motives. And part of what steals our joy is we go around trying to discern everyone's motives for everything they do. Look, there's correction and rebuke for action. But look, don't get into the mess of trying to judge people's hearts. That has always been and exclusively is the realm of God himself, not us. We're called to discern. We're called to know, to distinguish, to observe, to protect, to defend for sure. But to penetrate the heart and declare to someone why they feel a certain way, why they're doing something, that's not for us. Does that make sense? Paul says, I'm just going to give that one to God. Look, he, he believes it. He believes that people are envious and jealous. And he says, look, I'm just going to give that one to God. Everyone's talking about Jesus. Can we move on? And so he says, I will rejoice. <clears throat> Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is confident in this. Are you, are you, would you say in the depths of the loss of your circumstances, for this I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. I would underline that. I would put that at the front of your Bible. When you go into misery, I would proclaim that. I would go back to this verse when your circumstances plummet. Are you confident? It's one thing to know that Paul said it. It's another thing to believe that it's actually true. I'm not asking that you simply know things. I want to stress and impress that you would begin to believe things that God says to his people. And I can't make that happen. It's my job to instruct, to teach, to preach. But it's up to you to accept and believe. And when your circumstances plummet, when you lose that job, when you lose that child, when you lose that boyfriend or girlfriend, when everything heads downhill, can you say that you know this will turn out for your deliverance through prayer? And notice this, the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. That's where it's coming from. He's not saying that if the church at Philippi prays, everything will be okay. He's saying, I know that your prayers are facilitating the power of God. So we're not looking to the man. He's not looking to the church at Philippi and saying, you're going to help. You're going to be, a, there's God's going to do his thing. And then you're going to do your thing. He says, no, God's going to do his thing. And part of it's going to be through you. 
This will come from the supply of God. You have to know that if you're looking to people to fix your circumstances, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be miserable. If you're looking and confusing that people will bring you joy, you're missing it. He says this steadfastness will come through the prayers of the people, but it's through the supply of Jesus himself. You always go right to the source. You go right to the source. He says that is your hope. You have to be confident in that Christian because happiness will fade, it will deplete, it will plummet. But understanding the confidence that God will supply you in times of need, that will allow you to say that you turn, that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of spirit of Christ Jesus. According to my earnest, verse 20, expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul didn't know if this was it for him. Paul had a radical experience with Jesus, but he still didn't know the future. He didn't know if this was going to be his beheading. It wasn't. He was freed, he was let go, he was exonerated, and he was executed later. But he didn't know at this point. He's sitting in that house and he's penning a couple letters Part of the furtherance of the gospel is that he knocked out a couple letters here. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He didn't know. And that didn't shake him. Right now you're like, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this. Look, I was unemployed for eight weeks. And, and, and look, and I get in the scheme of things, it, it, it doesn't sound like a lot. But six weeks in, I had no clue where it was going. Seven weeks in, I had no clue where it was going. I don't know if you know this, but it's not cheap to live in California. It's not cheap to stack diapers every day for my kids. There's a lot of bills that rack up really fast, and I didn't know. And I think Carissa would attest that earlier in our, in our marriage, I would have been a wreck. I would have bounced out. As soon as I walked away from my job, I was like, we're getting out of state. Peace. We prayed. We had peace. We didn't feel called out of the state. And so we stayed. We didn't know. Right now you feel, I don't know if I can get out of circumstance. You don't know. And look, it's okay. Paul didn't know either. But he had confidence. He had joy. His happiness may have been in very short supply. But his joy was full bore. Because he was confident. So he says, whether by life or by death. For to me, and you've heard this too, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Look, it's okay to fear dying. It's okay to fear dying. But for the Christian, we do not fear death. Those are two different things. Look, I've been to war. I've seen death. I've been close to it. I've been shot at. I still have the shell casing of a round that was shot at my head in Fallujah. Went over and picked that thing up. I'm going to take this home to my wife. Dude shot this thing at me, right? I went out there and got the casing. Had a car drive into our convoy with a trunk full of C4 blow himself up. At times, was I nervous about dying, not seeing Carissa ever again? Yeah. Yeah, happiness was imploding at that point. 
right? And exploding at that point. But, and I still remember it, but, but there was yet a peace that surpassed, that surpassed all understanding. Look, I may have had uh, flirtations with fear of dying, but I was not afraid of death. That's not the realm of the church. You can fear the way by which you may die. That's why we all, I want to die peacefully. I don't want to die in anything, you know. Like you can be afraid. I, I did, I had two, a couple people who came out from Wisconsin, friend of a friend came out from Wisconsin when I was out here in college, took them surfing. I used to surf a lot more in college. That's why Carissa, she was like, there's a guy that'll never join the military. He's a hippie. You know, surf, played in a band, long hair down to here. Okay. I used to surf all the time. Friend brought out some friends from Wisconsin. Like, take them surfing. Cool. Storm surf, crazy stuff. These dudes got caught between the break zone and some walls. And I had to go in. Baywatch. This generation doesn't even know Baywatch. Ridiculous. And so, <laughs> I had to go in. And, and that was the only time I've, I can honestly say I've just straight yacked, I've just yanked people out of death. Dudes were getting beat up against the wall, grabbed and put him first, right? It's a lifeguard move. Sacrifice that guy to save you because if you both die, you both die. If the, if the rescuer is hurt, it doesn't do us any good. We're getting slammed, pulling these guys up on the stairs over there by Mondo's. Was, that, was, I, was I a little afraid of, of dying? I didn't want to drown to death, but I wasn't afraid of death. See, death to the world is a scary thought. Death for the Christian is graduation. Death is gain, it says. That's when you graduate to glory. And so, so forget spending time thinking about dying. It's okay to be a little freaked out about that. But being scared of death is nothing for the church. Paul says to live is Christ to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, look, if I keep going, this will mean fruit for, from my labor. He says, look, I'm going to keep doing some work. If I get out of here, it's back on. Paul's a soldier. Okay. If I get out of here, I'm going back to work. Is that your mentality? Look, when I get out of the situation, back to work. I'm, t- I'm telling my friends about it while I'm in it. As soon as I'm out of it, it's just full bore again. I'm back out on the mission field. The fruit from, will be the fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ. Paul is not suicidal. Google released the top three search words at night a few weeks ago. Okay, Google released the top three search terms after businesses shut down and guys like me stop using Google for work purposes and it gets down to all the personal purposes, the top three searches at night, porn, lonely, and suicide. There's a joy problem in America because we've confused it with happiness. There's a joy problem in the church because we've confused it with happiness. Paul is not suicidal. See, he doesn't want to leave the earth. He wants to see Jesus. Big difference. He's not trying to escape earth. He wants to meet his savior. Jesus, I haven't seen you since you showed up and smacked me. 
And he says he's hard pressed. He's torn between the two. He's not suicidal. He's not like, I'm over it. I'm done. He says, look, if I get out of here, I'm back on it. But I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. Part of me wants to go. You felt that? Every time I read about sex trafficking, every time I read about human trafficking and children and I see a picture come across one of the news services of people stacked in cars like, like animals, I'm like, I'm done with it. Jesus, come on, let's go. I'm out of here. I, I, sometimes I want to go meet Jesus. And, and some of it's just, I, want, I just don't want to, I don't want to see any of this anymore. Paul, Paul, he doesn't so much want to leave, but he wants to meet Jesus. He's not suicidal, but he's hard pressed. He's like, but it's tempting. I'm close. Like you can feel it. Like guards are outside. They could behead him. They could, they could behead him like that. He wants to meet Jesus, but he knows there's work to be done. I identify with that. I don't know if you do, but I do. He's hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, right? Raise your hand if you think heaven's going to be better than this. Something I'm concerned about. It's going to be far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. He says, look, I know people still need me. God still has a plan. If I get out of here, I'm still on God's mission. And being confident of this, verse 25, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And he did. He visited this church again. Imagine how cool that was. It's not even recorded. I'm going to ask Paul about that in heaven. Like, dude, what was that return party like? Verse 27. We'll do the whole chapter. I didn't know what we were going to do. We'll just do it. Is just reading the Bible enough for you? If not, right? We got to talk after this, okay? Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Oh, we should have stopped at the last verse. Oh, oh this is legalism. I'm supposed to act like a Christian too, right? I said this last series. I'm going to say it again because it's kind of a thing right now. We get confused when non-Christians act, don't act like Christians. I don't get that. Can't believe they did that. I can. It's not, it's not Christian. Can't believe that government, I, I can. I'm not submitted to Christ. doesn't surprise me that non-Christians don't act like Christians. What should concern us is that Christians don't act like Christians. Now look, it's a process. There's no place you have to get to. Make mistakes, you repent. That's part of the process. You're never going to be sinless. By the grace of God, through his sanctifying grace, you will sin less. Grace is not get to, get to sin free card. It says, shall I continue in sin so that grace may abound? Look, if God's grace is so epic, how about I sin more so that God will have to pour out more grace? Isn't that it? And that's the weird stuff that we go through. How many of you done this? God will forgive me. You're preempting your sin. You're planning it. You're meditating on it. He'll forgive me for this. I did that for 17 years as a porn addict. Thank goodness, grace. Click. We pre- and then, and then we, we, we enjoy it while we're in it. We look back on it fondly. We have locker room talk. We have gossip sessions on girls' night. We look back on that. He says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a challenge for you, church. 
Is your conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ? Was it today? Can't get that back, but will it be tomorrow? So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, good affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Not in any way terrified of your adversaries. Christian, not in any way terrified of your adversaries. No law that is passed scares you. No definition that they believe they're redefining scares you. That which God authored, man cannot redefine. Nothing our adversaries do scares us. God's given us a spirit, not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Calm down, Christians. I see you on Facebook. Calm down. Relax. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. When you keep your calm, it shows them Jesus. That's convicting. It's proof of their perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What? For to you it has been granted. It's a gift. Happy birthday. You get to suffer. Right? This is the reality of the Bible. I don't know where we got the prosperity gospel. It's not in these books. For you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. Jesus is like, here's a gift for you. You don't need, you, look, you're going to believe, look, I'm going to give you faith. You're going to believe in me and I'm going to allow you to suffer. Now, is Jesus going to cause us to suffer? No. You're not being punished for your sin. Jesus was already punished as your sin. But is God going to allow suffering in the world? Yes. And that's a big question that I know has a lot of complicated follow-up questions and answers and exhortations. But Jesus says there will be suffering. Is he causing it? No. But he's allowing it to happen. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Hebrews 12.2 said, For the joy that was set before Jesus. For the joy, not happiness. For the joy that was set before him. He endured what? The cross. His circumstances were awful. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating, the Bible says, as though it were blood. It could have quite literally been blood. It's a condition known as hemotidrosis where your body is under so much stress that it actually begins to push blood out of your skin. He says, God, look, if there's any other way, he said, said, God, if we could take care of this, if there's a plan B, I'm in. But, but, not what? Not my will. Your will. He says, if there's any other way to take this cup from me, what was he talking about? The cross? 
Was he talking about the scourging? Was he talking about the crown of thorns? Was he talking about the sucker punches? Was he talking about the beard being pulled out of his face? What's the cup? Cup of God's wrath. Cup of God's wrath. Jesus wasn't facing a cross. He was facing the wrath of God. Your sins aren't forgiven because Jesus died on a cross. Your sins are forgiven because he absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus was not happy. His happiness would have been based on his circumstances and that tanked and it went downhill from there. Jesus, it says, had a joy before him. See, happiness is circumstantial. Joy is eternal. And James, Jesus' half-brother, said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He learned that from his brother. He learned that from Jesus, growing up with Jesus. Let me say it again. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I got this from one, one pastor. He says, here's the key. Tests and trials will come. Know that they are opportunities for you to grow. You can become more steadfast and mature. You can rejoice not in the circumstance, but in the Lord who will change you through the circumstance to become more like Jesus. When you fall into that safety net of joy, when your circumstances tank, it does one of two things. It draws you even nearer to Jesus. It causes even more adoration for Jesus who suffered the ultimate, the ultimate in brutal circumstance, yet for the joy that was set before him. And so you fall more in love with what Jesus has done when you go through trials because Jesus went through everything. He says he was tempted in every way that you are yet without sin. You fall more in love with Jesus first and foremost in your trials. And second, you declare to a world, you declare to a world that though your happiness may be shattered, your joy is eternal. Not in what you've done, but what Jesus has already done. And so Paul opens up this letter in chapter one. He says, look, I don't have any reason to be happy and I'm not really happy right now. But God has a plan. He's in control. And though my circumstances are tanking, I don't even know if I get out of this thing alive. He says, I'm filled with joy. Because he's got his eyes on Jesus. And when you have your eyes on Jesus, everything else pales in comparison. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, just pray that that would be not just understood by your people, but believed by your people. I pray that this was just not just a speech from a man, but a sermon from God. Anything that I said in my flesh, let it be disregarded now. But Holy Spirit, anything that you impressed upon the hearts of the people, embed those truths. Holy Spirit, provide that safety net of joy which catches us even when our circumstances plummet. 
even when the trials and the tribulations come, that we would count it all joy because we, we fall more in love with Jesus. A man, the Bible says, that was acquainted with sorrow. And we reflect the Imago Dei. In the image of God, we reflect Jesus to a broken world that can't fathom why on earth we still have joy as things around us crumble. So Holy Spirit, cause us to fall more in love with Jesus, myself included. First and foremost, cause us to fall more in love with Jesus and give us the boldness that Paul speaks of to reflect that to a lost and dying world that we don't hinge our faith on happiness, but we have the foundation of joy that comes through the supply of Christ Jesus. Jesus, we're gonna go into a time of worship now. I'm mindful of you on your throne right now listening. Jesus, you can hear my words. You can hear our thoughts. And so we lift up these songs to you now. Jesus, be glorified. Amen.